Our scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 21. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Good morning. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, my heart is so encouraged from that time of worship that we just had, and my heart feels challenged, and my heart feels happy to identify my idols and give them up to you, and I pray now for power, Lord, not only for me, but for all of us, to simply surrender everything we are, everything we have to Jesus. Lord, you are truly satisfying. The things that we keep turning to that seem to satisfy us do not, in fact, satisfy us. And so I pray, Lord, that today you would capture us, that you would capture our minds, that you would capture our imagination, our curiosity, that you would capture our affections, that you would capture our will, that you would lead us in the way that we should go and that we would willingly follow you there, Father, that we would lay down every idol, that we might have Jesus, only Jesus. The truth of the matter is, Lord, that you are deeply, profoundly, and eternally satisfying. You are the treasure that our soul has been seeking for from the day we were born. So please, Lord, persuade us. Please, Lord, capture us. Please, Lord, take us a little bit farther down the road of true and authentic worship today. I thank you, Lord, for what you'll do. I thank you because I know that you will use your word to accomplish your purposes. And so we give you our praise in the mighty, the matchless, the merciful, the magnificent name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning by asking you to draw to mind the city in which you live. Just get in your mind your town, your city. Think about the governmental, the public structures that are there. Think about maybe city hall, the library, public schools, parks, whatever sort of public works things that are there. Just get them in your mind. Think about the churches that are there, the places of worship, maybe even the places of false worship. I'm thinking of the Mormon temple down on 39. Maybe some of you live out that way. Think about the neighborhood in which you live. Think about the various neighborhoods of your city. Whatever comes to your mind, draw to your mind the city in which you live. And let me ask you a few questions. What kinds of thoughts come to your mind as you think about your city? What kind of feelings strike your heart as you contemplate the place in which you live? What happens to your soul as you think about your home? And if you were to earnestly walk or drive about your city and pray that God would help you to see what he sees and feel what he feels, do you think your feelings would change? Do you think that what you see would change? Is there a match between what God sees and feels for your city and what you see and feel for your city? Well, however you answer those questions, please keep them in mind because we're going to return to them three or four times in the midst of the message today. 
You may remember from last week that through prayer and through a vision that God gave to Paul, and perhaps through some circumstances that the team faced, Paul's team traveled from a city called Troas, and if we could go to that map that's there, I think I put it there, uh, you'll see Troas sort of on the left there, right by the word Asia, and you'll remember that by the Spirit of God, Paul was led to go over into Macedonia, and there they visited the cities of Philippi, of Thessalonica, and of Berea. In every single place they went, they prayed and waited upon the will of the Lord. They asked God to give them his sense of desire for what he wanted for that city, city by city. And as God made his will clear, they went into the city and they preached the gospel faithfully. I told you last week that Paul cared so much for the poor. We could go to lots of places in the New Testament to show you this. He cared about people's uh, need for food and for clothing and for shelter and all of that. He cared about their practical needs. But beloved, what Paul cared about more than anything, because I think it's what Jesus cares about more than anything, is that people would hear the gospel. And so from place to place to place, they preached the gospel. And from place to place to place, God granted them fruit. People came to faith in Jesus Christ. And from place to place to place, they suffered for the sake of the name. Indeed, Jesus Christ in the city of Philippi, in the city of Thessalonica, in the city of Berea, he built his church through the power of the Holy Spirit as his people prayed, preached, and suffered. It was a way of life, beloved. It was a way of life that Jesus led them into. It was a way of life that Jesus blessed. Berea was the last city on their stop, at least on this part of their journey. And you may remember that some of the Jews of that area, not all of them, but some of them rose up to stir up dissension against Paul. And there in the city of Berea, the dissension got so strong that the church felt it best to get Paul out of the city. And so we're not sure whether he traveled by sea or by land, but somehow he made it from Berea down to Athens, which you can see near the tip of the peninsula there. A few of the brothers escorted him to that place, and when they got there, he simply asked that they would send Paul and Silas to him as soon as they could, and with that, they went back to Berea, and Paul was left alone in Athens. We pick up the story there in chapter 17, verse 16, so if you'll please look at what Luke writes. Luke says, now, while Paul was waiting for them, that is Silas and Timothy, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, it may surprise you to hear that in Paul's day, the city of Athens was home to only 10,000 people. That's half the size of the city of Elk River. But the influence of Athens was absolutely enormous. It still had world influence. Even though the Roman Empire had supplanted the Greek Empire some hundred years earlier, Athens still remained the intellectual and cultural center of the world. It still remained that place where Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and, and, and Alexander the Great and so many other great philosophers shaped and, and, and really, uh, really ruled in so many ways, intellectually, especially the Western world. Paul, you might remember, was a very educated man. He uh, was brought up in the school of Tarsus, which was one of the best schools in the world, and from there he was sent to the school in Jerusalem, which for Jews was the best school in the world. It was like going to a Harvard or a Yale or a Duke or something like that. He was very well educated. So from a young age, Paul knew about the Greeks. In fact, everybody in that world knew about the Greeks. And now, after so many years, Paul finds himself in this venerable city. And though Luke doesn't give us many details, in my mind's eye, I picture Paul just walking around the city. 
I've been there myself. I was there in 2008 or 2009 in there somewhere, and I can just imagine him landing there at the bottom of that mountain where the, the Acropolis was and where all the famous places were, and I just imagine Paul walking around from place to place. And as he walks, I imagine him praying. I imagine him praying to give God, that God would give him the eyes to see the city as God sees the city. And knowing Paul's heart to preach the gospel, I imagine that he kept praying, Lord, please, where is there a door for communication here? Where is there a door for me to preach Jesus in this city? And because, beloved, he prayed, his soul was awakened. You know, later Paul would say in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, that when we pray spiritually, we are awake. And when we fail to pray spiritually, we fall asleep. Because Paul prayed for the city, he was awake to the will of God for the city. Because Paul prayed for the city, he saw what God saw when he saw the city. And because he saw what God saw, Luke says that his spirit was provoked inside of him. Now that word provoked is a very important word. It literally was used to to refer to people who had epileptic seizures. And with that sort of graphic picture in mind, it would then be used to talk about someone who would get really angry. They're just provoked. It's like inside their spirit they're having a seizure. And the reason that Paul might have had a feeling like that was because Luke tells us that the city of Athens was filled with idols. In fact, the Greek word that's translated filled with idols is just one Greek word. The, the word literally means to be underneath idols. So the picture you ought to get in your mind is that Athens was like a city submerged in idols. John Stott says that Athens was like a veritable forest of idols. Everywhere you look, idols. One of the Greek poets himself sarcastically said that in Athens it was easier to meet a god than a person. <laughs> There's so many idols. I've been to places in India that are like this. Everywhere you turn, idols everywhere, idols everywhere, idols everywhere. This is what Athens was like. And this is why uh, Paul's spirit was provoked. Another interesting thing about this word provoke, when you look at the Greek version of the Old Testament, this is the same exact word that's used to talk about what happens inside the heart of God when he sees his people worshiping false gods. Same word. When God beheld the false worship of the Israelites, this same word was used to say God's spirit was provoked. He was jealous. He was righteously enraged for his people. He was disgusted at their sin. And yet at the same time, he had tremendous mercy toward them, tremendous compassion toward them. And I think that Paul, being someone who was filled with the Spirit of God, actually felt what God felt when he saw that city. So God saw a city full of idols. God, I believe, was provoked in his spirit when he saw those idols. And God was filled with compassion for the many lost souls who were there. Idols, provocation, and compassion. So let me ask you again, what do you see when you see your city? What do you feel when you feel about your city? Do you see evidences of God's grace there? I don't expect that we would feel exactly what Paul felt, but I'm just asking, what do you feel? Do you see God's grace in your city? Do you see idolatry in your city? And how would your heart change if you saw your city as God sees your city? Having been provoked in his spirit, Paul decided to do something about it. I love this about Paul. He's a man of action. 
He's not a man that just would sit around and contemplate. He's not a, a navel gazer. And in the city of Athens, it would have been easy to be a navel gazer. There were people that spent tens of years and decades and decades just sitting around thinking. But Paul was a doer as well as a thinker. And so, as you might expect, he decided to preach the gospel there. Please look with me at verses 17 and 18. So, because of what he felt in his heart toward Athens, because of what he saw, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, that is, those who were seeking the Jewish God but were not Jews, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So when Paul was provoked with emotion by the city, he began by doing what he always did. He went and sought out the Jews. There were not many Jews in the city of Athens in those days, but they were there, and Paul sought them out, and he preached Jesus to them. And in addition to preaching to the Jews, he went to the local marketplace, which, by the way, still is there. I've walked in the very streets where this marketplace was. It looks different, obviously, but it's still there. And there in the marketplace, he talked to whoever he could talk to. So I imagine in my mind that Paul was talking to Jews. He was talking to people who had a heart for the God of the Jews. And he was, frankly, talking to anybody who would listen to him in the marketplace. He was deeply provoked in his spirit. And above everything, he wanted people in the city of Athens to know Jesus, beloved. You see, if he had seen that city with the eyes of men, he would have been impressed when he was there. He would have been in awe when he was there. He would have been grateful to finally see the city he'd heard so much about all his life. But because he saw with God's eyes and felt with God's heart, he wanted more than anything for these people to know Jesus. And so he preached and he preached and he preached. When he was there in the marketplaces, there were some elites philosophers of the day from two of the primary philosophical schools of the day, the Epicureans and the Stoics. There's no need to go into the details of who those were. You could look it up on your own later. But I I do want you to understand that these are Harvard-like elite people. These are the elite of the elite. These are the intellectuals of the intellectuals. And Paul conversed with some of them, and some of them reacted by calling him a babbler. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word babbler. But to me, it sounds like they're either saying that he's just going on and on about nothing or that maybe he's a little bit psychologically disturbed or something. But I just want to be clear with you that what they meant when they called him a babbler, what they meant was that he was a peddler of second-rate ideas. They saw him as a man who wasn't thinking original thoughts, and what they liked was people who thought original thoughts. They're intellectual elites. They were looking for somebody to impress them by the flesh. And so the word that's translated babbler here was actually a very, a very technical word that meant a plagiarist, or again, a peddler of second-rate ideas, somebody who borrowed thoughts from over here and then went from city to city to peddle them. They were dismissing him as not worth listening to. Other people, though, of the elites said, no, let's not be so quick. He seems to be preaching foreign divinities and gods, and we probably need to know more about this. And there were two reasons why they were curious about this. First of all, The likely reason that they thought Paul was preaching foreign gods in the plural was because you'll notice that Luke says he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now in the Greek language, there are words that appear in a masculine form and there are words that appear in a feminine form. The word for Jesus appears in a masculine form. The word for resurrection, anastasis, 
appears in a feminine form. So likely the Greeks thought that when Jesus was preaching Jesus and Anastasis that he was preaching two twin gods. You remember that the Greeks had lots of gods like this, right? Fertility gods, spiritual beings that had intimate relationships with each other. So some of them probably thought Paul was preaching foreign twin deities that they had never heard of. And in a sense they were curious. But also These elites had access to the most powerful people in Athens, and you must understand that it was illegal to preach gods in that city that were not approved by the government. More importantly, it was illegal to preach gods in that city in any way, shape, or form that undermined the state government, just like it is in India today. There are people right now dying, being beaten, being thrown in prison in India today and in Nepal today for preaching Christ. And the issue is not so much that they're preaching Christ himself, it's that they are preaching Christ and dismissing all of the other gods. They are undermining the gods of the Hindus. This is what the people were concerned about. These Epicureans, these Stoics said, listen, we need to find out more about this guy because if he is preaching in a way that's illegal, we need to go after him. We need to get him. So please look in verses 19 through 21. And they, meaning the philosophers, took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Let me just pause there and tell you that the Areopagus, that's a word that means the stairs of Eris, which was one of the Greek gods. And the Areopagus was a a philosophical school, but it was also the judicial centerpiece of Athens. It was sort of like their supreme court. And so now these philosophers took him, they bound him probably, and brought him to Areopagus saying this, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, Jesus and the resurrection, Jesu, Kai, and Astasis. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Luke then writes, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. In other words, they loved navel-gazing. You may have heard that the Areopagus was a place where philosophers met, but as I said, it was also a place where judicial matters were settled. And so we should take from this probably not that Paul was being brought into a full-blown trial. That's probably not what's happening here quite yet. I mean, I wouldn't get in my mind the picture that he's coming before the Supreme Court itself, but I would get in my mind the picture that there are people from the Supreme Court that have gathered in a hearing room, or they might have been outside or wherever they were. It's not the point. The point is that some of the most powerful people in Athens gathered together to hear Paul out to see if they should indeed pursue this farther. They were looking into this babbler, this preacher of foreign ideas, to see what he was about and if what he was doing was acceptable or not. And oh, by the way, the penalty for preaching foreign divinities in an illegal fashion was death. So this was a very serious meeting, beloved. Beginning at verse 22, here's what Paul had to say. And I just want to read this whole message. It's very short, so let's just read it from verse 22 on. Men of Athens, he says to the court of law, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, idols everywhere. For as I passed along and observed your objects of worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And you should know, by the way, that there were altars like that all over Athens. There wasn't just one. There were many of them around the city. What therefore you worship as unknown, this is what I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And you have to understand, he's saying this right at the foot of the mountain where some of the greatest temples to the gods existed in the world. Right there at the foot of the temples, he is undercutting all of the temples. And he made from one man, which, by which Paul certainly means Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. In other words, we are children of God in the sense that he created all human beings. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and the imagination of man, things with which your city is absolutely filled, absolutely drenched. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn back, to turn toward him, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, by Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Just a little aside, if ever you get the chance to go to Athens, that whole sermon is inscribed on a metal plate and that metal plate is bolted to the rock where Paul likely preached the message. It's really cool to see it there. I had thought when I was flying over to Athens that I would memorize this in Greek and just get up on that rock and preach it there, but I realized that that would sound to them like, to us, like Shakespearean English would sound. So they would probably call me a babbler in the sense of this guy needs to go to a mental institution. So I decided not to do that. But I was pretty moved that 2,000 years after this message was preached, there it is still bolted to a rock in Greek so that people can read it. God has done over the years many amazing things through that little message. That aside though, notice that in Paul's brief message, he highlights a few things that really do make the case for the gospel. You could criticize Paul and say that he's not specific enough about Jesus, but remember that the whole context of this message is that he had been preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So this message came in a context. And in the message, he highlighted some very important things. He said that God is the creator of everything. And by saying this, he really undermined the entire divinity system of Athens and of Greece at large. He said that God is the singular sustainer of everything. And you may remember, if you know your Greek mythology, that for them, there was the God of this and the God of that and the God of this and the God of that. Paul said, no, there is one God who sustains everything. He said that there is one God who is the ruler of all nations and who alone is worthy of the worship of the nations. And you know that the Greeks thought it was fine for this nation and that and this nation and that to have their own gods. And Paul comes along and says, no, that's not true. There is one God who created all nations and he alone is worthy of all of their worship, all of their praise. Paul taught them that in a very broad sense, God is the father of all creation, the source of, his, of us all. And finally, he brought it home to this fact that God has been merciful to the nations up to this point, but now through Jesus Christ, he is calling all nations to repent. The day of judgment is drawing near. 
now, beloved, I have no idea when Christ is gonna come again. I would never dare to try to say that, but I will say this with confidence. We're 2,000 years closer to that date than Paul was, and Paul felt a sense of urgency about it, and I feel a sense of urgency about it. I know that according to our own time and our own way of doing things, God seems to be very slow with this, but according to God's time, only a couple days have passed, right? The Lord says that a thousand years are just like a day to him. A thousand years is like nothing to God. So from the time of Christ to now, there's only been a couple days in the mind of God. And even in our own minds, you have to realize only 40 generations have passed from the days of Jesus to now. 40 generations, it's not much. The day of judgment is coming, beloved. God made his promises to Abraham, and even though it took a long time, God kept every single one of his promises. And when God says he's coming to judge the nations, he means business. He is coming to judge our cities, and this is not a joke. Every single person will stand before God and give an account through Jesus Christ. And the way that we know that Jesus Christ is the measure of judgment is because God raised him from the dead like no other. There's no other teacher, there's no other God, there's no other prophet that has died and been raised again. And in this way, we know that Jesus will be the judge of all. Now, when the council heard this message, they reacted in a couple of ways. When they heard about the teaching of the resurrection and of Jesus again, they were more clear about what he was saying. Some of them just said, listen, he's not performing, he's not preaching twin gods so we should just let him go. But other people derided him as a fool. You'll remember that later Paul said that the gospel is foolishness to the Greeks, right? When they heard this business about Jesus and the resurrection, they're like, oh, what foolishness, what stupidity. This is not worth our time. This is not worth our intellectual space. A God who would take on flesh and die on a Roman cross for us and be buried in a grave and risen from the dead. That is stupid. That is foolish. And that's the way that some of these philosophers reacted to Paul. Some of them, however, wanted to hear more. And I think that some of them were genuinely interested in the gospel. Others were probably still not sure whether they should bring charges against Paul or not. But one way or the other, they wanted to hear more. And then finally, Luke tells us that some of them actually came to belief in Christ. In fact, one of them was a a member of the Areopagus. He was one of the ruling elite of Athens. His name was Dionysius, and we learn later from church tradition that he became the leader of the church in Athens, and later he actually gave his life for the glory of Christ. So there was some fruit here. There were some people who came to Christ. This brings us to the end of uh, Paul's time in Athens because this is all that Luke tells us about his time. But before we move from Athens to Corinth with Paul, I want to return again to the questions that I asked you uh, in the beginning. Namely, what do you see when you see your city? What do you feel when you feel about your city? And like I said, I do not expect that we should feel exactly what Paul felt and see exactly what Paul saw. I don't think there's a one-to-one comparison, but I think there's a lesson for us here that we ought to seek the heart of God until we see our city the way that God sees our city. And maybe, just maybe, as we see with God's eyes, maybe our spirits too will be provoked. To help us See our cities aright. I want to read for you a couple longer quotes from John Stott. I hardly ever read long quotes like this because I think it's kind of boring to listen to long quotes. But John Stott is just so amazing in the way that he defines idolatry and idols that I just have to pass this on. 
I have to do it word for word. This this one thing, by the way, that I love about John Stott, if you ever get a chance to get one of his commentaries, he's not just a dry intellectual. There are passages in his commentaries that actually make me stop and worship. And when you can find a commentary that makes you worship, buy that commentary. So anything you can get from John Stott, I would recommend that you buy it. This is one of those passages that made me stop in my tracks, put my commentary down, and worship Jesus and search my own heart. Here are his words. All idolatry, whether ancient or modern, whether primitive or sophisticated, is inexcusable. It's false worship. Whether the images are metal or mental, material objects of worship or unworthy concepts of the mind. For idolatry is the attempt either to localize God confining him within limits we impose, in other words, defining him in a way that makes him as we want him to be, whereas he is actually the creator of the universe. Or idolatry is to domesticate God, making him dependent upon us, taming and taping him, whereas he is the sustainer of human life. We are dependent upon him, not the other way around. Or idolatry is to alienate God, Blaming God for his distance and for his silence, whereas he is the ruler of nations and in fact not far from every one of us. Or, idolatry is to dethrone God, demoting him to some image or contrivance of our craft, whereas he is the Father from whom we derive our being. In brief, idolatry tries to minimize the gulf between the Creator and His creatures in order to bring God under our control. Please let me read that again. This probably is the key to his thinking about idolatry. Idolatry tries to minimize the gulf, the gap, between the Creator and His creatures in order to bring God under our control. More than that, It actually reverses our respective positions with God so that instead of our humbly acknowledging Him as creator and ruler, we presume to imagine that we can create and rule God. There is no logic in idolatry. It is a perverse, topsy-turvy expression of our human rebellion against God. Close quote. Now let me read you one more quote. This is briefer. Idols are not limited to primitive societies. Let us get that clearly in our minds. The U.S. of A. is a sophisticated, advanced society. And I believe that our culture is just as full of idols as Athens was. Idols are not limited to primitive societies. There are many sophisticated idols too. Now hear this clearly. An idol is a God substitute Any person or thing that occupies the place which God should occupy is an idol. Let me read that again. An idol is a God substitute. Any person or thing which occupies the place which should be occupied by God is an idol. So, covetousness is idolatry. Ideologies can be idolatries. So can fame, wealth, power, sex, 
food, alcohol, other drugs, parents, spouses, children, friends, work, recreation, television, I'll add smartphones, iPads, etc., possessions, even church, religion, Christian service, all of these can be idols if they occupy the place of God in our lives. I hope you can see from Stunt's comments that even good things can be idols when they take the place of God. Dave Fergus has said to me many times, when good things become God things, then they become bad things. When good things are put into the place of God, they become things which we must avoid. They become things from which we must repent. And so with this understanding in mind, let me just ask you the question once more. What do you see when you see your city? When you think about the public works and all the things that are there, when you think about the churches and false places of worship, when you think about all the stores and shops and places of business, when you think about whatever is there in your city, what do you see when you see your city? What do you feel when you contemplate your city? Do you see what God sees? Do you feel what God feels? Do you feel encouraged by your city? Which you might, which would be a valid thing. Or do you feel provoked by your city? Which you might. Or do you feel a little bit of both. We'll come back to this in a minute, but let's now travel with Paul to Corinth at the beginning of chapter 18. Luke gives us no explanation for why Paul decided to leave Athens or why he chose to go to Corinth, but if you look on the map there, you can see that Athens is there a little bit on the right, lower part of the peninsula, and Corinth is just along the way to the left there. When I was there, we actually took a day trip and went over to Corinth, and it only took us about an hour or something to make that drive, so I don't know how long of a journey it would have been for Paul, but it wasn't really very far. If Athens was the cultural and intellectual center of the Grecian world, then Corinth was its commercial center. This historic city was situated in such a way that it actually controlled all the trade routes going north and south and east and west. And you can actually see that little isthmus going between the, the land there. And that, that little isthmus was absolutely controlled by Corinth. So you could not travel from east to west without going through Corinth. And it was important that you do that because it was actually dangerous to, to uh, navigate a ship around the bottom of the peninsula. So Corinth was a very, very powerful city. Because of that, it was much larger than Athens. Athens had only about 10,000 people in those days. Corinth, at its height, boasted some 750,000 residents in those days. And in the ancient world, that was a very large city. For us now, that's not much of anything. But in those days, that was a, a, a megalopolis. That was a very huge city. And as any city that's that large and that industrious comes to be, you can imagine that it was a city filled with pride and it was a city filled with immorality. When I think of Corinth, I think of San Francisco, where I lived for the better part of 10 years. I think of a port city that's filled with all kinds of industry and also filled with all kinds of filth. So, led by the Spirit of God as he was, Paul's motive for going to Corinth likely was to bring the gospel to one of the most influential commercial centers in the world. But whatever the case may be, when Paul arrived there, he met a, a young, believing Jewish couple named Aquila and Priscilla. And what a grace this was. He'd never been to Corinth. 
I'm sure he'd heard of Corinth, but I'm sure he didn't think he knew anybody there, and, and, and still he was alone, so he makes the journey alone, and when he gets there, he finds not only a Jewish couple, but a believing couple who would later become very, very close friends and workmen with him. They just happened to share the same trade. They were tent makers, and so they worked together day by day. They got to know each other day by day as they worked together, and I'm sure they prayed for the city day by day as they worked together. My first six years of being in Christ, I worked with a brother of mine, a brother in Christ in a painting business. And day by day, we worked together. And day by day, we led people to Christ together. In fact, only one person who worked for us in those six years did not come to Christ. Every other employee at that company came to Christ. Some of the maintenance people at the properties we worked at came to Christ. One of those guys, his name was Warren. He came to Jesus. We baptized him. And then he met his wife and married her at, at the church where we were at. It was, a, it was a glorious thing to have this kind of relationship where we're working side by side to make money. But more important, we're working side by side for the sake of the gospel. And this was the relationship between Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila. At this time, Silas and Timothy finally made it down from Berea and made it down to Corinth where Paul was, and they met up together. But they didn't have much time to chat because uh, Luke just tells us that Paul was completely thoroughly occupied with preaching the gospel to the Jewish people. So I imagine you know, Paul and, or, or Silas and Timothy walk into the city. They find Paul. They have about enough time to shake hands and hug and say, God bless you, and then pow, they just got straight to work. They got straight to the ministry. They preached the gospel there. Some of the Jews received Paul. Others of them were very upset with him. And so Luke tells us that at some point, Paul actually shook the dust off of his garment, which was a sign to Jews that they would have understood well. And he said this. He said, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. In other words, I have preached the gospel clearly to you. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And go to the Gentiles, he did. Paul preached his heart out in that city, and a bunch of people came to Christ in that city. And it wasn't only Greeks, but there was actually even a Jew, a ruler of the synagogue in Corinth that came to Christ. Think about that, beloved. Paul is preaching Jesus to the Jews and preaching to the Jews and they get so upset at him that he shakes the dust off of his garment and leaves off from them and says, I'm gonna go now to the Gentiles. But even after leaving his own people, even after leaving the people of God, the Jews, and preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, the ruler of the synagogue, in our parlance, the pastor of the local synagogue, actually comes to faith in Christ. Tremendous grace. Unbelievable grace. And you would think that that would be good news, and indeed it was good news, but it also brought with it some bad news because it meant that since the, one of the leaders of the Jews converted to Jesus Christ, Paul was in some danger. So if you look at chapter 18, verse 9, you'll see that God granted Paul another vision. He wasn't just trying to entertain Paul, he was trying to lead Paul. Chapter 18, verse 9, Paul, do not be afraid Oh, can you hear the grace of the words of Jesus to his precious gospel-preaching son? Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. And I, I don't know about you, beloved, but there's no better news than that that I could hear. I, the Lord of the universe, am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city who are my people. God draw near to Paul in a vision to strengthen his son so that he could preach the gospel. 
And because God had strengthened him deep in his soul, he actually stayed in Corinth for another year and a half. And for Paul, that was like an eternity. This guy didn't want to stay anywhere, right? He was always on the move, always wanting to preach, always wanting to go to the next place for the sake of the glory of Jesus. But here he spent an entire 18 months and he preached the word regarding Jesus and he taught the word regarding Jesus and he no doubt prayed for that city day by day and he no doubt uh, saw the, the enormity of idols in that city day by day. If you were to go to Corinth today, you would see an, uh, a, a museum there where they have collected all the idols that are still in existence. You know, not all of them from then are still existing now, but there's a number of them, and you can see so many of the idols, and some of them are very graphic, by the way. It's sort of like ancient pornography, and the city was full of them, and surely Paul's spirit was provoked as he saw these things day by day, but his compassion was provoked too, and he kept preaching the gospel and preaching the gospel and preaching the gospel because God strengthened him, beloved. Paul was a prayerful man, he was a faithful man, and he was willing to endure anything that people might know of Jesus Christ. At some point, the Jews stirred trouble up again for him. They got very upset, actually, and they took him. They probably physically bound him, and they called him before the court of Corinth. Now, in the city of Corinth, the footprint of that city is still there, and I've seen it. You can still see all the foundations of the buildings, and they know exactly where the court was, and they know exactly the place where Paul was standing when he, when he would have been brought for trial. And I had the privilege of standing in that place and giving thanks to God because when I was in Corinth, I meditated upon these stories and tried to bring the story to life inside my heart and inside my mind because I knew at some point I would be standing right here preaching about Corinth and now it feels so real to me. I can see Paul standing there. I can see him being interrogated. But we ought to give thanks for the grace of God because the Greek powers that be who were interrogating Paul said, listen, this, this case is nothing. This is just a dispute among Jews. Let this guy go. It might seem like a little decision to you, but actually that decision was used over the next about 20 years across the Roman Empire to give Christians the freedom to preach the gospel. Over the next couple of decades, other proconsuls pointed back to this decision and said, this is what Gallio decided, therefore we will let the Christians preach. Later, they, they underwent a lot of persecution. But God did an amazing thing as, God, as Paul stood trial in Corinth for the sake of Christ. He freed him up to preach the gospel, and he actually freed the church around the world up to preach the gospel. And so we're going to leave the story off there. We'll pick it up next week. But, but Luke says in the very next verse, he said, So Paul stayed in Corinth for many days, preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching. Jesus was building his church in Corinth as his people prayed, as they preached the gospel, and as they willingly suffered for the sake of his name. So let me come back now for a fourth or fifth time to the questions that I asked at the beginning. What do you see when you see your city? What do you feel when you feel your city? And as I said, I don't think that the moral of the story here is that we ought to see exactly what Paul saw and feel exactly what he felt. I don't think that's the point. I don't think there's a one-to-one correlation. But I do think that there is a correlation in that we should pray for God's insight to see the city as he sees the city to feel about our cities as he feels about our cities, to allow God to provoke us with the things that provoke him, to allow God to inspire us with the plans of action that would be pleasing to him, that we would be like Paul and not just sit and look upon our cities, but that we would have a heart to preach the gospel to our cities. And so with that, I don't think I've ever done this before. 
in the seven and a half years I've been preaching here, but I'm actually going to give you homework today, and I'm really serious about this. I would like you to do an assignment this week, and next week I'm going to talk about it in my message, so please do it, because there will be a quiz, so to speak. The assignment is very simple. It's not something that you're going to have to add a lot of to-dos to your life, but just take a sheet of paper and and divide it in four. So I'm sorry I meant to do this and give you an example, but we didn't get in until really late last night. I didn't have time to do it. But just draw a line down the middle. Draw a line this way. And in this corner up here, I just want you to note the things that you see evidences of God's grace in your city. Like as you drive around, as you walk around, as you pray for your city, where do you see God's grace landing upon it? Surely it's there. I just spent a day with Kimmy and some friends of ours in East St. Louis. That city is absolutely devastated. It's a war zone. I mean, you would not believe it. You would not believe that something like that could exist in America. It is a war zone. When I woke up this morning and saw our city, I just saw grace. I saw the grace of safety. I saw the grace of so much provision. There is grace there. Where do you see grace in your city? Where do you see the glory of God manifesting in your city? In this quadrant here, right, evidences of idolatry. Where do you see idols in your city? Especially the way that John Stott thought of it. What is replacing God in people's hearts? So we've passed the season now. Perhaps you don't want a winter example anymore. Perhaps you would like winter to be gone. But I think of hockey. And I think of so many times when I'm coming to church early in the morning and seeing so many people, if you'll pardon the expression, worshiping at the hockey facilities, bringing their children up in the ways of the world rather than in the ways of God. Where, where else do you see idols in your city? Down here in this quadrant, maybe you could just note some scriptural passages that come to your mind. What does the Bible have to say about your city? What specific things does God bring to mind? Verses, wisdom that God would speak into the graces and into the idolatry. And finally, over in this quadrant, what are some action points that you think you could take, that maybe this church could take, maybe the church of your city could take in a broader sense? So up here, evidences of grace, evidences of idolatry, scriptures, and points of action. I'm going to put this up on the blog later today, and I'll send out an email to you all pointing to that blog so that you'll be reminded of that. But I do want to ask you again to please take this seriously. Please join me in seeking the mind of God about our cities, because I just believe that as the Lord grants us insight into what he sees as he sees the places in which we live, he'll also grant us power, patience, perseverance, resources, everything we need to preach Jesus here. I believe that. So please join me in seeking God's heart. And let's pray for that now. Lord, I thank you so much for what you did in Paul's life way back when. I thank you for caring for the Corinthian people and for the Athenian people. I thank you that you did not leave them without a witness, but that you sent your messengers there to herald the gospel. And I thank you, Father, for the people that I know of, and I'm surely there are lots that I don't know of, that are still laboring in those very cities to this day preaching the gospel of Christ. I thank you, Father, that even one of our supported ministries, Training Leaders International, has people in Athens. I thank you for that, Father. And I thank you for caring about Elk River. I thank you for caring about Otsego and Rogers and St. Michael and Albertville and Monticello and Zimmerman and Princeton and Ramsey and whatever other cities there might be around here, Father. Thank you for caring about our cities. I pray, Lord, that as we walk about our places of residence and pray and seek your heart, 
I pray that you would grant us wisdom and insight, Father. I pray that we would see as you see. I pray that we would feel as you feel. I pray that we would get the kind of insights that we need to know how to act as you would have us act. Father, we're just a little church, but we serve a great big God. And so use us, Father, for the glory of your name in this city and indeed across the world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.